I will continue reading from Mark's Gospel, picking up in verse 13. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would help us to understand. O Father, we pray that in understanding we might know more fully who Jesus is in all His glory. That we might trust Him. That we might be transformed by Him. This is our prayer. Amen. It would be understandable if you got deja vu this morning when I read to you the first part of Mark chapter 8. Didn't we just have a story in Mark's Gospel where Jesus takes a little bit of bread and a few fish and feeds a multitude? Yes, we did just have such a story back in chapter 6. We've got two very similar stories in Mark's Gospel placed very close to each other. And yet, as similar as they are, there are also some very important differences, some significant uh, differences between the stories. Each one has a particular emphasis. uh, And taken together, these two feeding stories in Mark 6 and Mark 8 manifest for us the kingdom Jesus came to inaugurate. Now, you've got a feeding story in Mark 6. You've got another similar feeding story in Mark 8. Uh, All throughout the Gospels, you've got feeding stories. You've got stories about feasting, stories about meals. Have you ever wondered, why are there so many meals in the Gospels? Why is Jesus always eating and drinking? Well, the meals of Jesus are crucial to His ministry. The meals of Jesus embody and enact what His ministry as Messiah is all about. It is as if Jesus' ministry is a roving dinner party. It's meals on wheels. Uh, Jesus travels all over, and everywhere He goes, He throws a feast. He keeps throwing these impromptu dinner parties. Jesus came eating and drinking. Why? Why does Jesus throw a feast everywhere He goes? The meals of Jesus accomplish many things. Uh, All throughout Scripture, we find that food is for fellowship. Uh, Meals create community. Uh, When we share a table, we form shared bonds with one another. Jesus ate with His followers because He wanted to create a new society, a, a new family, a new circle of friends, even we might say a new Israel, a new covenant community. Perhaps you know the old saying, a family that eats together, 
stays together. And so it is with Jesus and his followers. Jesus' vision for his kingdom is encoded in and embedded in his meal practices. But there's more than that. Uh, The meals not only form a new family, they show us the character of this family. They not only uh, embody his kingdom, but they show us the character of his kingdom. Indeed, they show us that Jesus is fulfilling the ancient kingdom prophecies, the ancient promises that God made to his people. If you go back to the Old Testament prophets, the Hebrew prophets of old, you find that when they describe the restoration of all things, when they describe the coming of God's kingdom breaking into history, they repeatedly use this image of a feast to depict God's blessings and God's shalom, the the peace of God that uh, has been promised to pervade the whole creation. So you've got passages like Isaiah 25 where the prophet talks about a feast of meat and wine that will be spread on the mountain of the Lord. Or Isaiah 55 that invites all who are hungry but who have no money to come and freely eat. The kingdom of God will be like the Garden of Eden restored with free and abundant food for everyone. The prophet said when Messiah comes, He will gather His people to His table to eat and drink and rejoice with them. The meals of Jesus indicate the kingdom has come. The kingdom is now. The ancient promises made through the prophets are coming to pass. The age the prophets promised has arrived. It is time to feast. It is time to party. It is time to celebrate. The meal practices of Jesus reveal the shape of His kingdom. They reveal the kingdom the prophets promised has arrived. But you know, as great as all that sounds, the meals of Jesus are also what got Him into so much trouble. It would be no exaggeration to say Jesus' eating habits are what got Him crucified. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Mark 6 and immediately the Pharisees show up to challenge Him and dispute with Him. After He feeds the 4,000 here in Mark 8, guess what? The Pharisees show up again to test Him again. Jesus got crucified because of how He ate and who He ate with. The meals of Jesus were at the center of the controversy surrounding His ministry. Jesus got murdered because of His dining companions. Because of His table practices. Now, Mark 8 tells us this story of a multitude that has gathered around Jesus. We find in verse 1, this multitude gathered around Him while He was still in the region of the Decapolis. Uh, This again is a largely Greek Region. So these are not Jews. These are Gentiles, this crowd that has gathered around Jesus. Perhaps it's a mixed multitude that doesn't include some Jews. But it's predominantly Gentile in this region. Uh, just as Jesus has healed a Gentile back in Mark chapter 7, so now He will feed Gentiles. Now, we're going to talk about the numbers involved in this feeding miracle next week. The numbers here certainly matter. In fact, when you come to the end of this passage, in verses 18 through 21, Jesus actually invites his disciples to do numerology, to look at the symbolism of the numbers involved. I'm going to get into that next time I preach from Mark. I just want you to know that when Jesus does that, this is what you need to know for this morning. 
When Jesus feeds the Jewish multitude back in Mark chapter 6, the numbers are Jewish. Uh, It's a Jewish multitude being fed, and the numbers are Jewish. When He feeds a Gentile multitude here in chapter 8, the numbers are connected with the Gentiles. They're connected with the nation. Now when you put the two miracles together, the numbers from the two miracles, when you put them all together, they point us to a new Israel that Jesus is forming that will be global in scope. So you've got a Jewish multitude that's fed. You've got a Gentile multitude that's fed. Numbers that go with each. And then when you put it all together, you see Jesus has come to inaugurate a global worldwide kingdom, a new Israel made of Jew and Gentile together. Not only here in Mark 8 do we know that Jesus was in a Gentile region, but there are other clues that this is a Gentile feeding, that Mark especially wants to call attention to that. Uh, Jesus says in verse 3 that uh, some in this crowd have come from far off. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, that is exactly how the Gentiles are described, as those who are far off. Uh, the word that is used for the baskets of fragments in Mark 6, when the, when the leftovers are picked up and gathered into baskets in Mark 6, the word that's used for the baskets the disciples used is actually a word that describes a, a kind of small pouch that Jews would keep with them. It's a, it's a Jewish term. But here in Mark 8, the word for the larger baskets, the, the hampers uh, that the leftovers are put in, is a distinctly Gentile word. The commentators call attention to this, that it's a distinctively Gentile term. So you've got a Gentile feeding here. Verse 2, Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Back in Mark chapter 6, it was compassion that led Jesus to feed the multitude. Here in Mark chapter 8, again, it is the compassion of Jesus that leads him to feed the multitude. Jesus has had compassion on Jews. Now he will have the same compassion on Gentiles. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as a high priest who can sympathize with his people, who feels our pain, who emotionally connects with us even in our pain and hunger. He's not a priest or a king who is indifferent to our suffering. He enters into our suffering, shares in it with us. He knows our needs. He knows our pain and our suffering. You see that here. Jesus has compassion on the multitude. Notice too the time marker. This is so significant. They've gone three days without eating when Jesus performs this miracle. Now, there's got to be some significance to this. Uh, If you think about it, these people have been with Jesus three days. They've been taking in his teaching. Uh, Why didn't Jesus perform smaller feeding miracles each day? Feeding them bit by bit instead of letting their hunger build up to the third day to the point where if they tried to travel home, some of them would pass out and perhaps die in the way, perishing in the wilderness. Why does He let their hunger build up this way? They've gone three days without eating. Now, if you or I were to go three days without eating, what would we call that? We would call that a fast. Uh, Fasting in Scripture is a form of death. To be cut off from Food is to be cut off from that which sustains life or that which God uses to sustain life. Three days they've been with Jesus in the wilderness with nothing to eat. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you find something very interesting. We read it this morning. Moses was to go to Pharaoh 
And he was to say, the Lord wants us to take a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may feast with Him there. The Israelites were to journey three days, fast for three days as they journeyed through the wilderness, and then on the third day, they would hold a feast. Uh, they would feast in God's presence. That request is made repeatedly to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 8. This three-day fast in the wilderness followed by a big feast. So there is an Exodus connection here. Whatever else you want to say about this meal, this is going to be an Exodus meal. But you know what's interesting? When the Israelites finally do get to leave Egypt, you know what they do? They go out into the wilderness and right away they begin to complain about not having any food. You can read about this in Numbers 10 and 11. They complain about not having any bread. And so what does God do? Well, there in Numbers 10 and 11, God graciously gives them manna from heaven on the third day. Beginning on the third day, He feeds them with manna from heaven. That fills in the picture for us here. When you get bread in the wilderness on the third day, it is a sign of exodus. It is a sign of heaven opening and God pouring His blessing out. It's God feasting with His people in the wilderness. All of this taken together is a sign of what Jesus has come to do. A sign that Jesus has come to rescue His people. Jesus is a new and greater Moses who has come to deliver His people from their slavery to their pharaohs, Herod, and the Pharisees. shows us the mission of Jesus. But maybe there's something else going on here too. Maybe we're not only supposed to look back to the Exodus. Maybe we're also supposed to look ahead to the cross. You have all the ingredients here of an Exodus story. You've got a three-day journey in the wilderness. You've got miracle bread from heaven. You've got even a sea crossing. But there's something else going on here as well. Another layer of meaning to this. This is a three-day fast. These people have been without food for three days. Therefore, as they've been fasting, they have been symbolically dead for three days. Cut off from food. Cut off from that which sustains life. But what happens on the third day? The third day is always a day of resurrection. It's always a day of feasting. Again, think about it. Jesus could have done a miracle each day to feed these people bit by bit to keep them from getting so hungry. Instead, He waits until the third day to feed them to anticipate what is to come. Jesus will raise them from the death of fasting on the third day by spreading a feast before them. Just as at the end of Mark's Gospel, He is going to rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is going to be cut off not just from food, but from the land of the living. In His death, in His cross, for three days. But on the third day, He will rise again. And what will He do as the risen Lord? He will go and feast with His disciples. See, this three-day pattern here of death and fasting followed by feasting and life. It's a kind of preview of what is to come. I think his concern for the multitude is interesting as well. Look at how it's described. He says if he sends them away without feeding them, they might not make it. He says they might faint on the way. Now, as we have gone through Mark's Gospel, we have seen that there are several key words, key phrases that pop up again and again in Mark's Gospel. They occur again and again, and as key phrases, they have layers of meaning. 
The word immediately works that way in Mark's Gospel. Immediately Jesus does this, then immediately he does that. It's a key word that's freighted with meaning in Mark's Gospel. The word bread works that way in Mark's Gospel. Bread is never just bread in Mark's Gospel. It's always pointing to something else. It's got other resonances, other layers of meaning. meaning. The word way, or that phrase on the way, works this way also. In fact, this might be the key phrase in the whole of Mark's Gospel, that phrase, on the way. I think that may be the key term in Mark's whole Gospel. Remember how Mark opens his Gospel back in chapter 1. He opens with a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah chapter 40. It's a quotation about the way of the Lord. And as we move through Mark's Gospel, we find really that this way of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied and that Mark has opened his gospel with the way of the Lord is really the way of Jesus. It's Jesus' own way. Jesus is constantly on the way in Mark's gospel. This way is the way of his ministry. It's the way of his mission. It's it's the way of his bringing in the kingdom. It's the way of wisdom. Ultimately, we can say the way is the way of the cross. It is the way to the cross. It is the way Jesus goes in wisdom and mission and the kingdom and ultimately the cross. And it is also the way in which His disciples must follow. As we are called to follow Jesus, we're called to follow Him in the way. Ultimately, the way of the cross. Well, here we read of a multitude that has been with Jesus for three days. They've been united to Jesus by absorbing His teaching and spending this time with Him in the wilderness. They're going to eat with Him. And then they're going to be on the way. What's that mean? Obviously, this is talking about their way home, the route they'll take to get home. But it's so much more. Uh, There's so much more. It's the way of following Jesus. Following Jesus in the way of wisdom, the way of the kingdom, the way of mission, the way of the cross. It's the way of discipleship. As they go on the way, Jesus does not want them to faint. He does not want them to perish. He wants them to be nourished. And so He's going to feed them, to strengthen them. He's going to provide them all they need to go on the way. The way of the Lord, the way of Jesus. The way of discipleship. Verse 4. The disciples just saw Jesus do a feeding miracle in the wilderness, but they seem to have already forgotten all about it. Or maybe it's that they think that while Jesus would do such a, a, a miracle for the Jews and provide for the Jews miraculously, they figure surely He's not going to do the same kind of thing for the Gentiles. Surely the Gentiles are not going to get the same kind of miracle that the Jews got. That may be the reasoning of the disciples. They ask, where can we get bread to satisfy these people in the wilderness? Where can we get bread to satisfy these people? Hmm. <laughs> where can we get bread? Bread to satisfy the crowd like this can't come from a store. Again, don't these disciples know their Bibles? Don't they know the Hebrew Scriptures? When there's a crowd in the wilderness that needs to be fed, miracle bread, where does it come from? It comes from heaven. Like the manna that came from heaven. 
So interesting. Again, go back to the miracle in Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, when Jesus is going to feed the Jewish multitude there, what does He do? He takes the meager provision of bread that they do have and He looks up to heaven as He blesses the bread and then breaks it and gives it to them. And we know how that goes. The multitude is fed. The miracle bread comes from heaven. In the Gospels, the miracle bread comes from Jesus. And of course, Jesus Himself is identified as the true bread of God, the true bread of heaven, the true bread of heaven that God gives to His people. Because He is bread, He can give bread to His people. Because He is from heaven, He can give to His people the bread of heaven. And of course, that's what makes the Pharisees, getting a little ahead of ourselves here, this is what makes the Pharisees' request for a sign from heaven later on in this story so absurd, so ridiculous. Multiplying bread is a sign from heaven. It is a sign that the heavens have been opened and that God is pouring out His faith. But the Pharisees are not the only clueless ones here. The disciples are clueless as well. The disciples are half blind to what they've seen. They're deaf to everything that's been said. They just don't understand. The disciples focus on what they don't have. They focus on their lack of resources. They focus on their dire circumstances. They focus on the wilderness. What they don't focus on is who God is, who they have with them in Jesus, how Jesus has acted in the past to open heaven so that bread may pour out for the multitude. You know, if you've ever invested money in anything, you know there's risk involved. And you are probably told by somebody, past results do not guarantee future performance. You know, if you invest some money in the stock market, that's certainly true. Past results tell you nothing about future performance. Just because something happened in the past with an investment does not mean it will happen again in the future. But in the case of God, past results do indicate what's coming in the future. Because His past reveals His unchanging faithfulness which continues into the future. God's faithfulness in the past serves to prove that He will continue to be faithful in the future. The psalmist does this kind of thing again and again. When he's facing a crisis, what does he do? He reminds himself of all the ways God has been faithful in the past. Uh, Psalm 22 is a good example of this. David is facing a crisis. And so he draws strength from a number of sources, but he draws strength from knowing that God has been gracious to him in his past, even from his infancy. Even in infancy, he says, God, you were my God. You were faithful to me then in my earliest days. I know you'll be faithful to me now and on into the future. God, your past faithfulness guarantees to me your future faithfulness. That's how the godly reason, that's how the faithful reason, but that's not what the disciples do here. And indeed, how often are we like them? How quickly we forget God's past faithfulness. We face adversity. We worry. We fret. We get anxious. And sure, we pray too. God brings us through it. God provides all we need. God shows His faithfulness. And then we face adversity again. And what do we do? 
We go right back to worrying, to being anxious, to fretting, forgetting how faithful God was in the past, forgetting how God just brought us through a trial, an adversity, how God brought us through last time. How quickly we forget. Well, verse 5, Jesus asks, how many loaves, or literally how many breads, do you have? In the Greek, there's not a different word for loaves. It's just breads in the plural. Uh, They answer seven. Verse 6, Jesus commands the people to sit down. Isn't this interesting? Every single time Jesus feeds His people, He has them sit down. He does it in Mark 6. He does it here in Mark 8. Matthew's Gospel. This happens in Matthew 14. In Matthew 15, it happens in John 6. It happens in Luke 9. Of course, it happens at the Last Supper when they're all seated around a table. Sitting down. This is called attention to every single time Jesus feeds His people. It's obviously important. Posture matters. Why does He want them seated as He feeds them? Well, it's because being seated is a position of royalty and relaxation. That's why we're seated when we do the Lord's Supper together. The posture is congruent with what the supper is all about. It even symbolizes what's happening as we partake of the supper. The supper is a kingdom feast. Here, these people have been traveling with Jesus for three days. They're really now part of Jesus' royal retinue. And so Jesus doesn't want them eating while they're standing or while they're kneeling. No, kings sit to eat. And so it is here. He is sharing His kingdom with them. He's sharing His kingdom with them, so they must be seated. By faith and by their following of Jesus, they have been absorbed into His kingdom. They share in the kingdom feast. They share in His royalty, His royal priesthood. Jesus takes the seven loaves. He gives thanks. He breaks them and gives them to His disciples to set before them. Did you catch that? He gives the bread to His disciples to set before the people. Now, these are the same actions, the the, the taking of the bread, the blessing it, the breaking of it so it might be distributed. These are the same actions described later on in Mark 14 using the same language in the Last Supper. This meal points to the Eucharist. It's proto-Eucharistic, you could say. It points ahead to the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's interesting here, In verse 7, Jesus also blesses the fish. This is one change from the previous miracle where there was fish. But back in Mark 6, the fish didn't get a separate blessing. Jesus blesses the fish. Now back in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, God blessed the fish of the sea. He blessed the sea creatures and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. Here He blesses the fish. And what happens? The fish multiplies. Now, all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, what do the fish symbolize? What do the sea creatures symbolize? Even the sea itself. The sea and all it contains symbolizes the Gentiles. It symbolizes the nation. So again, earlier, the the previous feeding miracle back in Mark chapter 6, there was not a distinct blessing given to the fish because symbolically speaking, there were no fish present. There were only Jews, people of the land present. But now you've got Gentiles. You've got the fish People. Because fish represent Gentiles, here they get a distinctive blessing. And just as the fish will be multiplied, so his Gentile followers will ultimately be multiplied. Well, we know the outcome of this miracle. Jesus takes these meager provisions 
and has his disciples distribute the bread and the fish. The 4,000 eat. They are miraculously all filled. They're satisfied. Their hunger is sated. And then they are sent on their way. Just like we eat at the Lord's table and then we are sent away by Jesus. We go from the table to the way of following Jesus in the world. So it is here. They eat and they're sent out to follow Jesus in the way. The way of mission. The way of the cross. We also see here the disciples gathered up the leftovers. Seven large baskets of leftover fragments. There's a surplus. We go from not having enough to having too much. We go from a shortage to having leftovers. Why leftovers? So we know that when we're on the way, we will have bread to share with others who are hungry. It's not just Jesus who's going to feed the multitudes. Jesus wants His people, His disciples, feeding the multitudes. I want you to notice a couple things here. Very interesting lessons we can derive from the way this miracle happens. How did the bread and fish get from Jesus to the people? Jesus did not feed them each personally. Rather, as uh, it, it says here in the story, it's very clear, He fed them through the ministry of His disciples. Think about that. For this multitude to be fed, they're going to have to receive the bread and the fish from the hands of these weak, deeply flawed, confused, half-blind, and deaf disciples. And that's how Jesus describes them when you come, when you come to the end of this whole section, verses 18, 19, and 20. Jesus says, look, having eyes do you not see? You're blind. Having ears do you not hear? You're deaf. How is it that you've been with me this long and you don't understand? Uh, Let's face it, Mark is not painting a very flattering picture of the disciples in this part of his Gospel. And yet these disciples who are half-blind and deaf, who are confused and who misunderstand so much, they are the ones Jesus uses to distribute and deliver His gifts to the people. And I would suggest to you, it is the same today. See, this is not just true, we say, of the Lord's Supper. It's true of life. It's true of life in God's kingdom. Each of us receives the gifts of Jesus through other disciples. Other disciples who, yes, have their inadequacies and their shortcomings, their failings. And yet Jesus chooses to use them anyway. Other disciples are His agents of grace. Indeed, other disciples are grace to you. We receive the grace of Jesus through one another, through other disciples from the hands and mouths of other disciples. And you know what else this means? It means not only that other disciples are Jesus' gift to you, it means you are Jesus' gift to other disciples. It means that Jesus desires to use you to minister to others, to give grace to others, to be grace to others. That's a hard thing to think about because we each know how far we fall short of the goal, the standard the Scripture sets for us. And yet, Jesus uses you. Just as here, Jesus uses these 
ordinary disciples to deliver His extraordinary gifts to others. So He uses us, ordinary disciples, to deliver His extraordinary gifts to others. He uses His disciples to accomplish His agenda, to do His work in the world. He carries out His ministry. He carries out His mission through His followers. Other disciples bring the gifts of Jesus to you. In fact, other disciples are the gift of Jesus to you. And likewise, you are Jesus' gift to others. You bring the gifts of Jesus to others. Jesus gives Himself to His people through His people. When we minister to one another, Jesus is the one who is ministering to each of us satisfying our hungers, giving us what we need that we might continue on the way. Jesus blesses us through each other. And this is why Christian community is so important. This is why the the church and participating in the life of the church is so important because this is where Jesus is at work to give His gifts, to distribute His gifts. Jesus works through His disciples to carry forward His ministry. Oh sure, I suppose it would be very nice if if each one of us could get everything we needed straight from Jesus Himself without all the messiness and the aggravation of having to deal with those pesky other Christians. But Jesus didn't set it up that way. Jesus ministers to us through one another. So think about it. When another Christian speaks a word of encouragement to you, that's really Jesus speaking to you. That's Jesus feeding you. That's Jesus giving you the bread of encouragement to sustain you on the way. He's delivering that gift to you through others, through another disciple. When someone makes a meal for your family in a time of need, that's Jesus giving to you through another disciple. That's Jesus giving you grace through another. When another disciple counsels you or speaks a a fitting word of rebuke to you that turns you from sin, that's Jesus giving Himself and His grace and His wisdom to you through another. To receive the grace of Jesus from another disciple certainly takes humility. We have to humble ourselves. For you to receive the grace of Jesus, the gift of Jesus through me, through my my mouth, and through uh, from my hand is humbling. Because you know how flawed and inadequate I am. I'm just like the disciples here. And yet this is how Jesus has chosen to work. Yeah, sure, other disciples are flawed. They're weak. They're going to be wrong on some things. And yet this is how Jesus has chosen to carry forward His kingdom. He makes the mouths of His disciples His own. He uses their hands as His own. Indeed, this is what Paul means when he calls the church the body of Christ. We are all Christ to one another. We need to learn to see Jesus in our fellow Christians, to receive from our fellow Christians as if we're receiving from Jesus Himself. And we need to be willing to be Jesus to our fellow Christians. To to be the grace of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus. To deliver the gifts of Jesus to others. Let me ask you a further question here. Is that always easy? Do you think the disciples liked their role here? Do you think they liked serving 
this way. You know, it's interesting is this whole section of Mark's gospel is really an interruption. It's really a rabbit trail. At the beginning of Mark 6, the disciples went on a missionary journey. And when they came back from that missionary journey, Jesus said, come aside, let us go and rest for a little while. That's Mark chapter 6. I think it's verse 31. They'd gone on this mission trip. They were weary. They were exhausted. They come back. Jesus invites them to take a little R&R. But what happened? They keep getting interrupted. Because everywhere they go to try to get this rest and relaxation, as they try to get this vacation in, everywhere they go, crowds flock to Jesus. And the twelve disciples, as his closest followers, are continually pressed into service. And so they've got to help feed the 5,000. They help here feed the 4,000. They keep having to work and having to serve, even though they're weary and exhausted. Have you ever felt like that? You're weary, you're tired, and yet Jesus keeps giving you one more thing to do, one more person to serve? Now, I don't think the disciples like this at all. I'm sure they like having their bellies filled along with the multitudes, but I think they resent the way they were called to serve the masses. I think when they came back from their mission trip, they thought they were above all of this kind of thing now. And indeed, that's why I think it calls attention to their hardness of heart at the end of chapter 6, and again here in chapter 8. I think it's why a couple of chapters later in Mark's Gospel, we find them arguing over who is the greatest. They're arguing amongst themselves over who is the greatest. And greatness in their minds means being served, not serving. When they're arguing over who is the greatest, they're basically saying, all right, which one of us is not going to have to serve tables next time around? Which one of us is going to be exempted from having to wait on these Dirty multitudes, next time there's a big hungry mass of people gathered around Jesus. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to talk about His suffering and His cross. And it's so clear, they don't get it. Peter even rebukes Jesus for talking about the cross. Because for the disciples at this point in the story, greatness means glory. It doesn't mean the cross. Greatness means being served, not served. These disciples are not exactly servant-oriented at this point. They don't yet get the whole servant leadership thing. They don't yet understand that true life is found in dying. That glory comes through humility. That greatness comes through sacrificial love. Now, it's not easy to be a servant, to go in the way of servanthood, the way of the cross. It's not easy to be the delivery mechanism for Jesus' gifts. But there's also great joy. Great joy in knowing Jesus is using you as His hands, as His mouth to minister to others. Great joy in knowing that the way of service is the way of true glory. The way of the cross, the way of dying is the way of true life. Again, we are God's gifts to one another. God has given you to me and me to you. I need to learn to see Jesus in you. You need to learn to see Jesus and His presence in me. Whatever problems, whatever shortcomings you see in your other Christians, you need to know other Christians are the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus to do you good. And you're called to be the same to them. One more thing here, very quickly. Jesus 
multiplies what we bring to Him for the sake of mission. The feeding of the 4,000 points ahead to the global mission Jesus will give to His church, the mission of the church to the nation, Jesus promises to feed the world. To bring the world and all the nations in it into His kingdom. People will come from north, south, east, and west to His kingdom and to His table. But how will that mission be fulfilled? You know, it seems like the Herods and the Pharisees of the world always have more power, more resources than God's faithful people do. The kingdom of Jesus looks weak compared to the kingdoms of this world. I mean, just look at the Middle East. ISIS looks a whole lot stronger than the church over in the Middle East right now, doesn't it? The corrupt powers in D.C. and in Hollywood look a whole lot more powerful than the church in our own nation. Here in this story, it seems that Herod and the Pharisees are the ones who have all the power. And the disciples look weak and helpless by comparison. And yet, and yet, who feeds the multitude? It's not Herod feeding the multitude. It's not the Pharisees feeding the multitude, even though they're the ones who look like they have the power. No, it's the disciples, even though they look weak. They're the ones who feed the multitude. Now, how will the mission of Jesus to disciple the nations be accomplished? Jesus doesn't seem to have very much to work with, does He? There's a vast multitude out there that's dying of hunger. All Jesus seems to have is a few loaves of bread and some half-blind disciples who don't even really understand the way of the kingdom all that well themselves. But Jesus takes what little we have to offer. And He blesses it and He hands it back to us. And as we distribute it to others, as we deliver His gifts to others, He multiplies those gifts until His work is done. Jesus started the two feeding miracles with five and seven loaves each. He fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000. And after that is done, 12 baskets and seven baskets are picked up. You see the point? In each of these miracles, you finish with more than you started. The point is, the church is going to be able to feed an even greater multitude with the bread of heaven. We're going to be able to do even greater works than Jesus Himself did. Look, it's true. None of us are really all that powerful by the world's standards. None of us are power brokers in the world of politics or uh, entertainment. None of us can really influence all that much what happens in D.C. or L.A. or even right here in Birmingham for that matter. We're not much. We don't look like much. We don't have much. Faithful Christians in America today find themselves more and more on the outskirts, on the outside of the culture's power structures. But you know what? It just doesn't matter. Because Jesus can do a lot with a little. Jesus can use us in our weakness and in our inadequacy to do His work to feed the world His bread. Jesus has given us all we need to follow Him in the way to carry out His mission to the nations. So don't complain about how little we have to work with. Trust Jesus to take what we do have and to multiply. 
Again, why do you have leftovers in these stories? It's because Jesus wants us to know. He always gives us what we need and then some. He gives us bread not only for our own needs, but bread to share. I love what Paul does in Philippians 4. You know, Philippians 4.13, it's one of those verses that's so often taken out of context. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we say, oh, well, that means I can pass this next algebra test or set a new best in my running event. That's not, you know, Jesus can help you with those things. But that's not what the verse is really about. What Paul is saying is, no matter my circumstances, no matter how much or how little I have, no matter how great or how small my resources, I can do the mission Christ has entrusted to me. Christ is adding. And indeed, He wants the Philippians to share that same confidence. So a few verses later, at the end of Philippians 4, He says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And indeed, that is His Word to us. We have all we need and more in Christ Jesus. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank You that You have indeed given us all that we need for life and for ministry and for mission in Christ Jesus. Not only enough for ourselves, but an overabundance, a, a, a super supply that we might share with others. Oh Lord, help us to do so. We pray this through Jesus Christ and in His name. Amen.